The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 33 and 34. As the ship approaches St. Hubert, the tourists learn about the quarantine, rage that they were taken into danger, and receive dubious reassurances from the ship's captain. At the same time, Martin expresses the realization that they will be held prisoner on the island until the epidemic is over, to which Sondalius replies blithely, Why, of course. Martin, Leora, and Sondalius are led down to a launch that will bring them to the island, while passengers murmur, Well, they got nerve. I certainly don't envy them. As they descend the stairs, Martin feels like he is going to the scaffold and then scolds himself for his agitated imagination. He tells Leora she can still go back, and she dismisses the thought with humor, but then admits she's scared. They are met by Dr. Stokes of St. Swithin's, who warns Martin that his experiment will be opposed by Inchcape Jones, and, if he does, they should come to Stokes's parish, if Stokes is still alive. They are brought to the dim, lifeless waterfront, where the people who once bustled around the shore are either hidden or dead. The first life Martin sees is a crying woman and bewildered children following a cart heaped with corpses. Martin is racked by tortured thoughts, that he could have saved them, that he should have choked Leora rather than let her come. They spend the night at the San Marino Hotel, and Martin wakes in the morning to a strange land, quote, that in distant New York had seemed dramatic and joyful, and that stank now of the charnel house, unquote. Sondalius wakes feeling young and boisterous, ready to get at those rats. They are visited by Inchcape Jones, who seems apprehensive and indignant about their presence. Sondalius charms and flatters his way into Jones's good graces, and reassures him that all they want is a lab for Martin and a chance to slaughter rats. Then there is a pounding at the door, and in walks Ira Hinckley, who has come to St. Hubert as a missionary set on saving the natives from their vile, wicked ways. He begs Martin not just to heal their bodies, but to help snatch their souls from the fire. Sundalius ushers him out, while Martin laments how awful this is all going to be. They venture out into the grim, deserted streets and marketplaces. The people of St. Hubert had been told they couldn't get the plague from each other, only from contaminated vermin. But they don't believe it, and they are deathly afraid of one another. The heat and the misery are oppressive, and Leora suggests that they go back to the hotel. Inchcape Jones comes in a car to take them to Penrith Lodge. On the way, they pass a schoolhouse that has been converted to a pest house, with hundreds of patients, guards to keep the delirious ones from escaping, and someone dying every hour. Martin loses all feelings of superiority over humanity. The suggestion seems to be that the feeling has been drowned by horror and pity. At Penrith Lodge, former home of the now-deceased port doctor, Martin establishes a lab, next to which is a bedroom for him and Leora, and an apartment for Sondalius. Their first caller is Dr. Oliver Marchand, 
a handsome young black doctor, who immediately starts in with informed and probing questions about phage and offers his help. And Martin, quote, forgetting the plague, forgetting the more cruel plague of race fear, unquote, becomes lost in the discussion, after which he rues the prejudices that would have made him think such a discussion with such a man impossible. Sondalius, meanwhile, sets out to discover the failings of the Jones administration. With the local merchants against him, and no power to cajole them, Jones has failed to persuade the community to take precautions against squirrels and rats. Sondalius bursts in and becomes dictator. He threatens, flatters, and terrifies the people, and then immediately starts in on rat-killing. He has a warehouse owner arrested for refusing to fumigate, and then pumps it full of hydrocyanic gas. When a tramp is found inside, dead from the fumes, Sondalia says dispassionately, Poor fella, bury him. Murder, he reflects, is an unavoidable side effect of their campaign. He spends his days killing rats, and his nights drinking too much and telling lively stories at the ice house. Though the suffering around him tempts Martin to give up the possible saving of millions for the immediate saving of thousands, he holds his ground. Then Jones takes him on a tour of Carib, where death is in every house, the village is surrounded by soldier police, and everywhere are bloody-eyed, mouth-opened, tongue-blackened faces of terror, and the vision of Gottlieb fades. Still, when he has time at the ice house to recover himself, he vows he will not, quote, yield to a compassion that in the end would make all compassion futile, unquote. And he calls on the governor, Sir Robert Fairlam. Fairlam dismisses him, saying he will not have Yankee vivisectionists coming in and using them as a lot of sanguinary corpses. Sondalius's bullying gets Martin the opportunity to make his case to a special board, including Fairlam, Jones, the Board of Health, members of the House of Assembly, Sondalius, and Oliver Marchand. With the image of Gottlieb standing beside him, Martin reverently seeks to explain to them how a crisis can choke the patient search for truth. Only Stokes and Marchand are on his side, and he finds a furious antagonist in Ira Hinckley, who calls him a liar, a fool, a scorner of righteousness, and a phony scientist. This raises the wrath of Sondalius, who declares that wherever Martin leads, he will humbly follow. But Sondalius still refuses to take a dose of the phage himself. Martin is approached by Cecil Twyford of St. Swithin's Parish, where, perhaps, he says, Martin can implement his plan. Four days later, Martin learns that Ira is dead, and Lewis seems almost gleeful as he describes Hinckley's death in the chapel he had turned into a pest house, at the foot of the pulpit where he did so little to save his people. Martin begins injecting the people of Carib with phage, and he makes precise notes as the epidemic there, and only there, begins to slacken. But it is also the worst center for infected ground squirrels, and Sondalius declares that the only way to disinfect it is to burn it. Together, they drive out the healthy, 
carry out the sick, and burn down the town, clubbing the rats and ground squirrels as they flee. Sondalius returns to Blackwater immediately. Martin follows two days later, after administering to the exiled patients himself. And when he does, he finds Sondalius, as we all knew would happen, as I dreaded, staggering and weak. Over the coming days, Martin tends to him and watches him uncomplainingly die. Despite his love for Sondalius, Martin is able to keep his head and keep to his plan, saying to himself, I'm not a sentimentalist, I'm a scientist. The death toll and the panic continue to increase, and Inchcape Jones goes to pieces. When he finds a sloop escaping to Barbados, he demands that they let him on board, and he leaves behind his home, his people, his sisters. Arriving at his waterfront hotel and realizing what he has done, he kills himself. Stokes is made Surgeon General, and with Stokes's support, Martin is given the go-ahead for his experiment in St. Swithin's. He insists that Leora stay behind at Penrith Lodge, where she is safer. Martin is brought to the home of Cecil Twyford, where he is introduced to Twyford's wife and sons, and their American guest, Joyce Lanyon. Looking at each other, Martin and Joyce feel immediately that they could be brother and sister. Talking to each other, they feel it even more. But when they part, Martin is disturbed by the same irritable restlessness that he had shared with Orchid Pickerbaugh. And he gets out of bed, falls on his knees, and prays to Leora. As he damn well should. The next of my posts was called Sinclair Lewis on Christianity. To me, one of the most startling passages in these chapters was the abrupt and unsparing death of Ira Hinckley. Quote, Four days later, he heard that Ira was dead. Till he had sunk in coma, Ira had nursed and blessed his people, the humble colored congregation in the hot tin chapel which he had now turned into a pest house. He staggered from cot to cot, under the gospel texts he had lettered on the whitewashed wall. Then he cried once, loudly, and dropped by the pine pulpit where he had joyed to preach. Unquote. I don't know about you, but I had the feeling that Lewis was unsympathetic to Ira even in his death, that he almost felt Ira got what was coming to him. Reflecting on the novel as a whole, it seemed to me that Ira is one of the few characters that Lewis presents as consistently unsympathetic. In part, I think this is because he represents the ultimate expression of the recurring theme I discussed in the post, Heaven Save Us from the Humanitarians. He is the do-gooder doing bad. Very bad. Not only does his pulpit pounding do nothing to save his people— the principles behind his preaching actually bring about their deaths. Ira attacks Martin as a scorner of righteousness and an unqualified scientist, so focused on saving their souls from damnation that he undermines Martin's efforts to save their lives from an imminent and grisly death. The scene of his death seemed to emphasize what Lewis sees as the absurd futility of Ira's work. Ira turned his chapel into a pest house. 
He watched people die within walls displaying gospel texts. He fell dead at the foot of his own pulpit. All this got me curious about Lewis's own relationship with religion, so I did a little research. I will link to two articles I read, from which the following stories are drawn. One was an article by Robert Bruce Meyer in the Free Thought Almanac, and the other by John Borrego from a journal called The Historical Magazine of the Protestant Episcopal Church. According to Borrego, at the age of 17, Lewis had a conversion experience at a YMCA meeting, after which he gained a reputation as a fanatic and a prig, and became scornful of young men who could not match his fervor. He planned, when he got to Yale, to prepare to be a missionary. At Yale, he was in a culture characterized by scientific thought and a contempt for evangelical Christianity. By his sophomore year, Borrego says, Lewis was losing his faith. Lewis wrote at the time that he believed in plain living and high thinking, but not, quote, priesthood and gods and saints and indulgences, unquote. He said, quote, if there be saints, they are Voltaire as well as Christ, Shelley as well as St. Paul, unquote. By the time he left Yale, he had abandoned Christianity in favor of secular humanism. He said, quote, The Christian religion is a crutch. Until it is taken away, we can never begin to walk well. Unquote. Many of his works involve loss of religious faith. Elmer Gantry is about a corrupt and self serving minister. The Godseeker tells the story of a man who struggles to escape the guilt-inspiring Christianity of his youth. Main Street features small-town religious hypocrites who, quote, believed in the Christian religion and never thought about it, believed in the church and seldom went near it, unquote. Biographer Mark Shorer tells an especially amusing story about Lewis and religion. In 1926, Lewis was giving a talk at a church, where he answered a critic who wrote to defend the fundamentalist idea of God. A woman who shared the stage with him says he replied, quote, God is not like that. Modern man does not so picture him. If there were such a deity, he would certainly strike me dead for what I'm about to say in the next 15 minutes, unquote. After a bit, Lewis paused in his speech and then said, Quote, well, the 15 minutes are up. I'm still alive, and the writer is wrong. God is not as he pictures him. Unquote. It seems that God didn't strike him down for his coldness in killing off Ira Hinckley, either. The next of my posts was called Goodbye, My Friend. Just when I became so fond of Sondalius, he's taken from me. I knew he would be. I'm sure you did too. And I became fonder of him up to and even in his death. When Martin is horror-stricken at the realization that they will be prisoners of the quarantine, Sundalius is cavalier. Why, of course. When Martin awakes feeling disturbed by the ghastly stillness and feeling painfully far from home, Sundalius rumbles in from his room feeling boisterous. Quote, Hey, Islim, I think we get some work here. Let me at those rats. Unquote. 
It is he who breaks down the defenses of Inchcape Jones, he who disposes of Ira Hinckley, he who terrifies the Board of Health into action, and he who exterminates rats with his own hands. He who was, says Lewis, quote, the most brilliant as well as the least pompous and therefore least appreciated warrior against epidemics that the world has ever known, unquote. Though he doesn't agree with Martin's plan, he is the one who makes it possible for Martin to present that plan to a special board. And when Martin is unfairly attacked, it is he who rallies wrathfully to his side. He has the independence of judgment to decide against violent opposition, that a whole village must be burned, and he has the intrepidity to get it done. All the while, he is the same joyful, storytelling carouser, whooping it up at the ice house after he's done carrying plague-contaminated patients and clubbing rats. And because he is principled, because he refused, to the end, to be injected with phage, if Martin wouldn't inject everyone, he of course fell prey to the plague. Even in death, a horrific, ghastly death, he was uncomplaining. He makes deathbed remarks about the jests of the gods, but as death approaches, he says, I'm not afraid. My grandmother always says to give flowers to the living. I'm glad I made my apology to Sandalius when I had the chance. And yes, I know, this is just a book. But I think that in a very real way, the characters of a book, if you read it right, become your friends. The last of my posts, if you can call it that, was called, What the? This isn't much of a post, but I couldn't let these chapters go by without saying it. These days, my four-year-old daughter's favorite expression is, What the? Well, though that might not be the most elegant or literary of expressions, sometimes it just seems like the right one. And when Joyce Lanyon appeared on the scene, and Martin succumbed to orchid-like temptation, I just sat and stared at my book, thinking, What the? I don't know what else to say right now. Why, Martin? Why, Sinclair Lewis? Why now? Let's see if we ever find an answer. I am not convinced we will.